This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Association of Government Accountants, the AGA, just completed its 10th annual survey of inspectors general. This year, the survey was unconventional. For one thing, the AGA focused entirely on the impact of the pandemic on the oversight community. Plus, the association included more state and local oversight executives because of how closely they worked with federal officials over the past two years. Ann Eberts is the association's CEO. David Zavada is a senior partner with Carney and Company. They previewed the survey with executive editor Jason Miller, discussing why the big data challenge is top of mind for federal, state, and local auditors. We asked questions in three areas. The first area was innovations that are occurring. What, what's the, how did the IG community approach oversight of pandemic relief programs? And then secondly, what were some of the lessons learned? And then thirdly, what are some of the challenges going forward? I think what we found is that there was a lot of innovation going on in the IG community. A lot of communication, collaboration, some really great things in the terms of the way that they are approaching oversight of pandemic relief programs, and really had an effect on changing the way those programs are managed. We heard a lot today so far at the uh, AGA Fraud Prevention Conference about the needing to share data. That was, I'm sure, several of the questions that came up or several of the comments that you heard made. Is that still remains probably among the biggest trends and challenges that, that came out from the survey is how to access the data at the, in, in, at the right time, at the right moment to make their best decisions? Yes, a- absolutely. There were two big challenges. The first one was sharing data, uh, accessing and accessing and using data specifically. And then the second challenge was the title of the report, which is sustaining change. How are some of these great things that are going on in the IG community going to be sustained into the future after the PRAC sunsets in 2025? So in terms of the data sharing, you know, we saw a lot of uh, situations where fraud and improper payments could have been avoided if there was sharing of uh, data between agencies and between levels of government. PRAC made a lot of progress in terms of sharing some, some data. For example, UI data. UI data is now being shared. It took them subpoenaing 54 states to get it, but, uh, but, but now uh, that data is being regularly shared, and they could check for things like duplicate social security numbers and things like that. And that was a big area of frustration, I think, for the PRAC when they started asking for data. From from your perspective, why is sharing data so hard? And maybe did the IGs in the survey talk a little bit about what they think the impediments are? Is it just culture, of course, or is it is it technology, or is it laws and regulations that Congress needs to get involved? I think it's it's all of those, but. I think privacy is a, a, a key concern. I mean, social security numbers, those are very, you know, that's a very private and, and important piece of data belonging to one person. And the agencies are pretty stovepipe still. And the technology really hasn't advanced to where we need it to be to do sophisticated, timely matching of data or, you know, bouncing um, pieces of information against another to find anomalies and bad actors. David brought up the idea of innovation. We're seeing a lot of innovation in the IG community. What surprised you or stood out to you from the survey about some of that innovation? Anything that you said, oh, I didn't realize that was happening or that's a definitely a good sign? Well, it was interesting. I was surprised when I heard that the initial sets of data came from USAspending.gov, which 
has been around since 2014, 2016, uh, and continues to to grow. But even Treasury says that USAspending.gov doesn't have all accurate data. You know, it's they they can only use what is provided to them. Um, so I think there there are anomalies. There are new tools that are being leveraged. It's getting people on board with understanding the power of those new IT tools. You know, we just had a session on machine learning, which was incredibly informative, but, you know, it it takes time. And you need to build confidence in what those responses are before you can really act legally on them. Yeah, if I, if I could add, Jason, uh, we've been doing a survey, as you said, for 10 years, and the IG community traditionally has been pretty siloed. Uh, but the pandemic really brought them together, uh, and they came together in really an, an innovative way. And they're, they're introducing these concepts of, of agile oversight, where they're, they're reviewing programs uh, and, and doing risk assessments of programs early on and getting that information to management uh, in a collaborative way to really affect change early on. And we saw that from the CARES Act to ARPA. We saw a change being made. Initially, those controls that were were not in place uh, for the CARES Act eventually did come into play in in ARPA. They started to come back to some of those programs, and and that that reliance on self certification was scaled back a, a little bit. Did the respondents in the survey talk about the types of technologies they're using, or did they talk about the types of technologies they'd like to use? Was there any kind of feedback from them about okay, how do we how have we or how do we want to make our processes better? I think it's a lot of the challenges in that area are really getting data that's usable, getting clean data, and getting data in a format that it can be bumped up against other types of data. And, uh, you know, we're dealing with a lot of systems. Those systems are, are old, they're antiquated, and even if you get access to data, it's, it's not always usable. We've seen some efforts by, for instance, the Labor Department, you brought up unemployment insurance as an example, to really try to improve their systems internally, but also to reach out to the states and do some pilot programs. Is the systems issue and the funding issue around it, the resources go with it, did the survey kind of address that at all in terms of how these states are addressing some of these funding resource challenges? I will say the one funding issue that that did come up was uh, funding for an analytics capacity within the IG community, and that's called the PACE. And that, uh, after the Recovery Act, the IG community had a centralized data analytics capability, but then that somewhat died on the vine. So it had to be restarted to cover the pandemic relief programs, and uh, that took some time. So having that funding in place, having that capability to be ramped up and scaled back as needed, you know, I think was one of the issues that did come up. And, and did you want to jump in? Yeah. In, in addition to that, the IG community recognizes the the problem with, you know, the rat board disappearing in 2015, 2014, and, and not having a base of analytic capability to, in their hands to meet the needs of the the pandemic. So they're already trying to push Congress to give them, you know, additional funding or a stream of funding so they can keep that analytic center of excellence going, continue to leverage the power of that and, you know, get other agencies on board with sharing data with them. Getting back to this concept of sustaining that change, that's the, the biggest challenge is, is integrating these uh, analytics capabilities, this uh, agile oversight, this collaboration, these new communication channels and relationships 
integrating that into the way oversight is performed in the future is really the, uh, the challenge. Taking a step back from the survey and, and the bigger respondents, uh, anything stand out to you as surprising? Anything different than in previous years in terms of, oh, our top priority was X and now it's Y and X dropped three spaces down? And anything like that that was like, oh, look, look at the change that we're seeing from the respondents? The interaction between the state and the federal IGs is is really gelling and moving. Hopefully that will continue forward. They have a, an IG association that will be getting together in the next couple of weeks, which is, is exciting. So they will be having some of these similar conversations, too, about how do we keep the initiative, the energy, the passion, and the personal relationships that people have built, because that's been so important to have trust and have a relationship with the other people you're asking to share data with you, you know, and understanding that we'll use it only for this reason. This is for the, the common good or the better good. Ann Eberts is the CEO of the Association of Government Accountants. David Zavada is senior partner with Carney & Company, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.